0: It is so good to be together, isn't it? Man, what a gift to gather. 40, 40th anniversary, on the 100th anniversary of Sandy Island Camp. Um, that's just really special. So, And thanks for the privilege of being able to come and join you. Our, our family's been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, our church in, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, sends you greetings. Um, and uh, it's hard to believe we've been there four years already. Um, and, and obviously, a lot of you are familiar faces. Some of you I've not met before, and I'd love to, you know, greet you and say hello um, sometime this weekend, but really excited to be here. Let me pray for us, and we're going to look together at God's Word. Gracious Father, thank you for this special occasion this weekend, Lord. Uh, you have been at work in this congregation uh, for more than 40 years, but Lord, what a special Thing It has been these last 40 years to gather as a church family uh, away from the world just to come together to enjoy you, to enjoy the fellowship and bond that we have in you and uh, the way that you have been at work through so many generations in this church. Uh, Lord, we praise you for that and we praise you for the chance to mark that this year and to to enjoy the fellowship that you've provided um, through your son. So give us grace this weekend, and give us grace as we look to your word and we think about what it looks like to bear faithful witness to you in uh, the world around us, Lord, the the crazy polarized world and day that we live in. Uh, Give us grace uh, to continue bearing witness to your gospel for years to come. Uh, We ask that you would be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our theme this weekend is faithful witness in a polarized world, so bearing faithful witness to Christ in a world that just feels so torn apart and on edge. Uh, it's hard to remember a time when our, our communities, our, our families, even our, our nation has been so divided over so many different things all at the same time, like every issue seems to just push us further and further to the margins to the extremes and and it's also hard to recall a time when biblical christianity has had such a diminishing influence in our culture around us i think most of us here uh, can probably remember a day when it was it was culturally and socially advantageous to identify as a christian like the the general moral fabric of, the, of, our, of our American culture was so rooted in and shaped by Judeo-Christian values that that was just the assumed standard for how the world worked. The world has changed a lot, right? Now, now identifying as a Christian or exercising the Christian faith in the public square is no longer a guaranteed asset. It is much more often considered a liability. Uh, the the Judeo moral Christian value system, uh, the Judeo Christian moral value system, uh, is is really seen as increasingly outdated and and obsolete, even toxic and harmful. It's on the wrong side of history, and and not only uh, not only is our you know the Christian morality outdated, Christians can't even agree on what issues to rally around or how to respond to them when we do. Like we're not just polarized, the world's not just polarizing, uh, but even within the church we often feel that push, that tear, such that, that churches or relationships within churches feel on edge with one another. How do we come together and bear witness to Christ when we can't agree on which issues are the most important or what to do about them? And yet, you know, that, that, that sense of dislocation, sometimes it, it almost feels like waking up uh, one day to, to discover that you're a stranger in your own land. Or maybe even in your own house, right? Like the, the world has shifted overnight. I went to bed and it worked this way. And all of a sudden I woke up and everything's different and everybody's telling me I'm the crazy one. Like That's what it can so often feel like. It's disorienting, it's discouraging, and it's really distracting from the main thing God has called us to do. And so that sense of of strangeness that we feel, that sense of not quite fitting in with the world around us, as dislocating as that is, it's actually much closer to our true identity as followers of Christ that we are strangers and exiles in this world. The reality for the Christian is that this world is not our home, right? The Apostle Paul tells us our citizenship is in heaven. That's our home. And in the, meanwhile, in, in the meantime, Peter tells us that we are strangers and exiles, strangers and aliens. We are resident aliens, wanderers, sojourners, which is one of the, one of the most common themes of Scripture to describe the people of God. That's who we are. Our true allegiance is in heaven. Our true inheritance waits for us there. But at the same time, that means we are also representatives of Christ on the earth. So our strangeness or our alien status is not the kind where we just need to hunker down and kind of carve out a little space where we can just survive and preserve our own way of life. Rather, we are ambassadors of Christ in this meantime. We are strangers and yet ambassadors at the same time. Given a mission sent into the world to make disciples for Christ, the Apostle Paul describes it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore as em- therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. That ambassador picture captures both that strangeness, we're not citizens of this world, and yet that sense of mission, but we're here for a reason. And and how do we carry out that mission then as strangers in a world that increasingly thinks we're crazy and and outdated and weird, and, and, and in a world where we're increasingly... Uh, under the pressure to identify ourselves according to worldly categories rather than the gospel of Jesus. Uh, That's what we want to think about this weekend. Uh, And this mission to proclaim the gospel, when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the good news of who God is and all that he's done to uh, establish his kingdom and to deliver us from our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the message. That's the heartbeat of the Christian faith, the message that changed our lives, that we're sent into the world, that it might change others' lives. That is what we are to bear witness to uh, as ambassadors. As Paul puts it in Colossians, we want to see men and women delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so how, how do we do that in a world that is just so on edge and where we feel so uncomfortable and so challenged? Um, how do we meaningfully engage the world around us with the gospel of peace without getting distracted or compromising our faith? And so that's what we want to consider. And, and not what I hope to... For us to see is is how the gospel of Jesus doesn't just provide us the message that we're called to proclaim, it also provides the model and the means for accomplishing that mission. Like The gospel gives us the categories we need to bear faithful witness in a polarized world. And we're going to look at that in three sessions. So the first uh, thing this morning, we're going to start with a gentle answer, rising above cancel culture. So that's, that's our starting point uh, this weekend. We will never bear faithful witness to Christ if we can't escape the swirling vortex of scorn and judgmentalism that just sucks us down and drowns us in, in, in a flood of outrage and self-righteousness. Like we, we have to rise above that if we're going to bear witness to Christ in this world. But then after the break, we'll consider how the gospel flips the script on what's called expressive individualism, how it provides us a lifeline out of the the sweeping current of uh, kind of the predominant cultural narrative of our day. And we'll define what that means when we get there. Uh, This myth of self-ownership, that I am my own and I belong to myself. We've got to see how the gospel gives us a lifeline to rescue us out of that current and then tomorrow morning, we're, we're going to set foot on the shore and simply bask in the unparalleled beauty and power of the gospel itself. That we, In Jesus, we have a better story than anything this world can tell us, than anything that this world can offer us. And so that's where we're going. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and find your way to Psalm 123, and we'll get started with a gentle answer, rising above cancel culture one of the uh one of the reasons that gospel conversations are so difficult today is that we've forgotten how to have conversations period like we don't know how to talk to anybody about meaningful things uh, without stepping on a landmine accidentally and 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 something blowing up in our face. Public discourse is now all about volume rather than content right who can max out our own voice and and push mute on anybody who 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 thinks differently or sees things differently than we do it's it's more about heat than light more outrage than ideas and and the urgency there is is to shut down any opposing voices you know and and we can Think through all the classic examples of this, right? The the ones that make the news, the the college students shouting down a professor they don't want to listen to or or whatever. But we can also think of the all-caps shouting matches we have on Facebook with others, right? Where where we're just trying to get our voice, the loudest one out there, so that we can drown out anybody who thinks otherwise. We live, in other words, uh, we live in a world of constant contempt, that's that's what our culture has become today, a world of constant contempt. We're always angry about something, right? We're always angry about something. And, and contempt is nothing new. Contempt, ridicule, scorn, judgmentalism, all of that is as old as the fall of humanity. What's new is its ubiquitous presence. It is everywhere all of the time. It, it, it's become just the air that we breathe, strife, polarization, tribalism. They're not just occasional experiences anymore. They're the modus operandi of of how we interact with one another in our world. Virtually every headline in our newsfeed is generated specifically to provoke outrage. Because if you get mad, you'll click, right? And if you click, the advertisers will pay. That's that's how the game works, right? It's meant to provoke outrage. We're always angry about something, we're always judging and being judged. And any small misstep along the way, any opinion expressed that doesn't meet the approval of the gatekeepers, any idea that threatens somebody else's power, any tweet that makes somebody feel uncomfortable, any transgression of tribal loyalty is all that stands between your success and your failure, between your Acceptance and your rejection, your approval and your cancellation. Uh, The way I kind of think about it in summary is that truth has been replaced with loyalty, and loyalty is measured in outrage. That is modern discourse. Truth has been replaced with loyalty, and loyalty is measured in outrage. Contempt is the new currency of truth and righteousness and, and, and power with no option for redemption if you mess up, right? Once canceled, always canceled. That's how, that's how our world works. No matter how loyal you've been in the past, no matter how much you promise to make it up, no apology is ever sufficient. No forgiveness is available. And so knowing all of that, and, and, and just kind of how modern discourse in, in, in the world works. Knowing all of that threatens to silence every conversation. Like you can no longer really say what you're thinking or wondering about without this fear of stepping on a landmine and, and, and sparks flying. I mean, how often, if you just stop and think, how often do you find yourself having to censor what you think in conversations with others? Because you're not sure which which trigger you'll trigger, right? We, 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 just, we, we censor ourselves, whether you're at work or with a friend or even at church, we find ourselves doing this. And, and maybe we're just a little too eager to cancel those who disagree with us as well, right? How many relationships have, been, have suffered over the last few years over differing opinions on masks or vaccines, right? Right? Or, or racial justice, or, or po- politics? How many friendships have been lost, or family members that won't talk to us anymore because of those things? Too many. Too many. We live in a culture of constant contempt, and and not only does that threaten to just ruin human relationships, generally speaking, uh, to silence us, or it, it also ends up distracting us from our mission and making it infinitely more complicated to think about bearing witness to the gospel in such a contentious climate, in such a volatile environment. And so when you get to Psalm 123, and and you read the closing lines of, of that chapter, Psalm 123, verses 3 and 4, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. When you read those lines, that resonates. Like, we feel that, that overwhelming flood of the contempt that surrounds us. As Christians with a mission, we feel that weight. And so what do we do with that? What do we do? How do we rise above cancel culture in order to bear faithful witness to Jesus. Well, I think Psalm 123 helps us do that as it reveals to us that that the mercy of Jesus is what enables us to meet the constant contempt of this world with the gospel of peace. It's the mercy of Jesus. And so I want to look through this song together. Uh, Psalm 123 is part of a collection in the Psalms called the Songs of Ascents. We actually looked at some of these at a previous sandy island many moons ago, uh, the Songs of Ascents. But if you look at the little superscript, that the small print above verse 1, it says, A Song of Ascents. Uh, you'll find that same superscript above chapters 120 through 134 in the Psalms. And, and our best guess is that these songs were were a collection of pilgrim songs that ancient Israel used to sing on their way up to Jerusalem as they made their their uh, regular pilgrimages for the, for the different feasts that they were required to go up to the house of the Lord. And so this is, these songs in 120 to 134, they were like the playlist or, or, or the, you know, the soundtrack for this journey. They, they gave voice to all of the hopes and fears and anxieties and dangers that they were to encounter in their pursuit of God as they made this pilgrim journey whether it's the danger of making the trip, as in Psalm 121, or the dilemma of their own sin when they actually appear before God in Psalm 130, or the ridicule and scorn they encountered as pursuers of God. And that's what 123 gets at, this ridicule and scorn that God's people so often faced. Uh, Israel was no stranger to scorn or judgment Judgment uh, of others. Contempt. They were mocked for their faith at times. Think of Psalm 42.10. My adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, Where is your God? You think your God is so great. Where is he? They were mocked for their faith. They were mocked for their failures as well, as when God sent them into exile. Lamentations 2.15. All who pass along the way hiss and wag their heads at you, O daughter of Jerusalem. Uh, they were mocked for their faith while they were still in exile. God's abandoned you. Why are you still holding fast to him? Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth. saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Why don't you sing one of those songs that, that tells us how great your land is and your God is so that we can make fun of you? They were mocked for, their, for holding fast to God, they were mocked by their own broken hearts at times. Psalm 42.3, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me continually, where is your God? They were no stranger to scorn or contempt. They had more than enough of it. And, and when we find ourselves, like ancient Israel, drowning in that culture of ridicule, uh, sucked into that cycle of constant judgmentalism, whether because of our faith or because of our failures, it's really easy to just want to respond in kind, to want to turn around and just return to others what they've been heaping upon us, right? To, to fight fire with fire, to ride that wave of judgmentalism to glorious victory over our foes. So we cut them down, right? We, we do to them what we are afraid of them doing to us. We cut them down so that, so that we don't look as bad or feel as bad. If we can make them lower, I don't have to go anywhere, but I look better, right? Uh, or, or we filter everything that our opponents say through the least charitable lens possible. And meanwhile, we give uh, those on our team every, you know, grain of uh, every, um, uh, what's the word? The benefit of the doubt. We give them the, every benefit of the doubt. We become defensive. Uh, we rehearse our own virtues and we focus in l- with laser precision on their vices. We retreat into the old echo chamber where the only voices we listen to are the ones that we already agree with. that just tell us over and over how right and righteous we are. All right? We focus less on winning people to Christ and more just on winning. That's what we want to do. We want to win. But whatever shape that takes, we know there's no victory there. We know that there's no victory there. James 1.20 tells us the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. However much we think we can own the other guy with brutal tactics and whatever else, that's not how the gospel of peace goes forward. We have to rise above cancel culture. We have to stop being sucked into the games of of fretting and anxious, you know, swirling of, of our anger toward those who we feel are a threat to us in order to bear faithful witness to Christ, to break free from that undertow that keeps sucking us down and drowning us. Now, we cannot minimize the wrongs that we see in the world Sin really is sinful, but we cannot continue to withhold the very grace that the gospel's founded on and and, and is the embodiment of. We have to rise above that. And so in order to move forward, as, as Psalm 123 tells us, we have to look to God for mercy. We have to look to God for mercy. That's where the psalm begins. I want to read it one more time. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. It is the mercy of Jesus that enables us to meet this world of contempt with the gospel of peace. And so what we see here in Psalm 123 is is really a picture of complete dependence on the Lord. Complete dependence on the Lord, who alone can give us the mercy that we need. And, and that portrait that we've got here stands in stark contrast to that frenzied posture of trying to keep up or get ahead in a culture of outrage. So first, the psalm directs us to the one who's actually in charge, right? Every, everybody today wants to talk to the person who's in charge, we want to talk to the manager when we've got a complaint we see somebody doing something they're not supposed to be doing or or we don't feel that we've been adequately treated we want to find out who's in charge here so we can register a complaint right well verse 1 tells us who's actually in charge oh you who are enthroned in the heavens the lord is in charge that's a poetic poetic way of saying that that The Lord is the king of the entire universe. He's the true ruler of everything that exists. He made it all, he owns it all, he rules it all, and he sovereignly works all things according to his purposes. And through Jesus, our great high priest, we actually have access to the one who's in charge. We're invited to look to him and to pray to him we, we can go straight to the top with our concerns or our complaints even. So, so first, it directs us to the one who's actually in charge. But second, unlike the kind of boorish, take no prisoners, fight fire with fire attitude, we're told that we have to adopt if we're going to win or make an impact in the world. What we see here is a picture of, of quiet dependence on God of quiet dependence on God. Notice the posture of the servant in verse 2. There's humility there. They recognize that that their master or their mistress is over them and that they are completely dependent on them for direction or for provision. So there's, there's humility, but there's also patience in their posture. The servant doesn't move until the master gives the signal. The servant doesn't eat until the master offers the meal. But there's not just humility and patience, there's also trust in the posture. Their gaze is not grudging, but eager and hopeful. She trusts her mistress to move, to to give the signal, to offer her hand. The servant doesn't give up waiting for the master and go look elsewhere or take matters into his own hands or her own hands. Instead, she waits. He waits for mercy. I think in a lot of ways, this psalm is the embodiment of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth In a world that tells us that the brash and the bullies are the winners. They're the ones who are going to inherit the earth. God says otherwise. God says otherwise. It's the one who operates in complete dependence on the Lord. Humble, patient, trusting. Knowing that there's no plan B. Like if the Lord doesn't come through, I don't have a backup. I am waiting on the Lord. The master is all I've got. And so we look to the Lord, his plan, his ways, until he has mercy. Until he has mercy. And that dependence and that humility, it expresses itself foremost in prayer. I mean, that's really what verses 3 and 4 are. They are a prayer to the God who's actually in charge and can do something about our situation. It's a prayer asking God to do what he alone can do. Which, again, that just stands in stark contrast to how we typically react when we feel we've been wronged or slighted or we feel threatened. What do we usually do? If we don't fire first, we at least go tell somebody else, um, right? Like, we have a prayer request to share, right? We, we, our first response to ridicule and scorn is, is usually defense or gossip or, or firing back first. But here, the response is prayer, looking to the Lord for mercy. Which doesn't mean that prayer is the only thing you do in those situations when you find yourself ridiculed or opposed or, or taken advantage of. This is this is not a, a defeatist posture that says we should never raise a legitimate complaint or never speak truth to power or blow the whistle on something that is contrary to God or dangerous to his people. It, and it certainly doesn't mean that you never... Proclaim the gospel in a contentious environment, but prayer is the first thing that we do, and the most important thing, because it it puts the situation in the hands of the one who's actually able to do something with it, right We look to the one sit who sits enthroned in heaven, who's actually in charge, who has the compassion, the power, the wisdom, in a word, the mercy to meet us in our situation and guide us forward. And and what's amazing is that when we look to the Lord's hand for mercy amid the the suffocating contempt of this world, uh, that's when we realize in many ways he's already actually answered that prayer through Jesus. He's already answered this prayer through Jesus. The mercy that we need to bear faithful witness in a culture of constant scorn is already available to us in Jesus Christ. For starters, Jesus understands our scorn. He understands it. I mean, when you're getting piled on by, by others, it's easy to think that you're like the only one who gets this. Like, nobody understands what I'm going through, and, and, and uh, nobody can relate. Or, or to just close ranks with, with those who feel what we're feeling. Jesus knows what it means and what it feels to be ridiculed and mocked. Did you ever think about that? I mean, his own siblings mocked him for thinking he was something special. Right? John 7. The Pharisees mocked him for the company that he kept. He's a friend of sinners, tax collectors. The guards mocked him for claiming to be a king. Mark 15. The crowds mocked him for claiming to be the Son of God during his humiliation on the cross. Jesus knew what it felt like to cry out in agony for God to answer in mercy and still be left on the cross to die. He understands our scorn. He knew what it was to look with humility and patience and trust to his Father, surrendering to his ways and his timetable. And, and, and it's that dependence on the Father that freed him to respond to his mockers with mercy. He didn't return insult for insult. He prayed for them from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As 1 as Peter 2 described, he committed no sin, neither was Deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Did you catch that? He didn't give up on the Father and take matters into his own hands. He continued, even though everything was falling apart, he continued entrusting himself to the just judge, who was over top of the unjust situation he found himself in. He kept his eye on the hand of his father with humility, patience, and trust until he had mercy, knowing full well that mercy would not come until death had already taken him. He did that. As Hebrews 4.15 reminds us, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus understands our scorn. But more than that, Jesus overcame our scorn. The eternal Son of God did not become like us simply so he could relate to us, but so that he could rescue us, so that he could deliver us from sin, and with it, the scorn that flows from it. You know, at the end of the day, uh, judgment, ridicule, outrage, it's all a result of sin. It's either the result, I should say, it all flows from sin. It's either a result of sin, so the just condemnation we deserve, or it's an act of sin, heaping on scorn and judgment to someone who doesn't actually deserve it. Either way, it's flowing from sin. Scorn is the result of sin. And, and, and so, by dealing with our sin, Jesus at the same time deals with our scorn. He bears it in our place, both the judgment that we rightly deserve for our failures and the ridicule that's wrongly heaped on us. He died willingly for it. He he willingly subjected himself by, he he rescues us from our sin and our scorn by willingly subjecting himself to really the, the greatest object of scorn in his day, the cross. We think of the cross as this beautiful symbol. It was a means of public execution for the lowest of criminals in the first century. There was no more embarrassing, shameful way to go than Roman crucifixion. And yet Jesus willingly subjected himself to it so that he could deliver us from it. Hebrews 12.2 describes it like this. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. He he scorned the object of scorn by willingly taking it upon himself and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He willingly endured the withholding of God's mercy in his own moment of pain that he might extend that mercy to us having borne the weight of it on the cross. And so, friends, if Jesus is your Lord, if you have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you're trusting in him alone for your salvation, your sin and your shame, your scorn, have been decisively dealt with. Jesus not only gets it, he overcomes it. Peter continues in in 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus overcame our scorn. And because he has done that, he frees us to meet the scorn of this world with the gospel of his peace. We don't have to fix it. We can love as he has loved us. The gospel of Jesus changes the rules of engagement in cancel culture. His mercy, I'm gonna have no mercy on this fly. If it doesn't <laughs> stop. His his mercy meets us in countless ways. And and it it enables us to respond differently in the world than than maybe others might treat us, or we see others treating one another to respond differently to the condemnation of this world so we can rise above it and bear faithful witness to him within it. And I want to highlight four ways that the gospel frees us to do that. First, the mercy of Jesus frees me from the need to vindicate myself before others. It frees me from the need to vindicate myself before others. When when I am being accused or corrected or condemned, when, when my people or my tribe are being you know, assaulted or attacked, or my position is being slandered, when I find myself being canceled or just challenged or disagreed with, I don't have to rush to my own defense. I don't have to prove that I'm right and you're wrong. Not if my righteousness is in Christ and not myself. I don't have to make sure that everybody knows I'm actually right, right? I don't have to boast about how great I am or tear them down so I look better. If Jesus is my justification, if my righteousness is based on his life for me, not my own life and works, but on Christ's righteous life and sacrificial death, then whatever scorn I rightly deserve has been dealt with, it has been paid on the cross, absorbed and exhausted by Jesus, and whatever scorn I don't deserve, he'll deal with that too. He'll deal with that too. Maybe in this life, he'll vindicate me, but if not, he will in the end. And I can leave that in his hands. Christ is my vindication. Whether I'm right or I'm wrong, he's my vindication So I don't have to be anxious or angry or defensive or outraged. I don't have to to vindicate myself. I can look to his hand and wait for mercy. So mercy frees me from the need to vindicate myself. Second, his mercy frees me to be honest about my failures. Frees me to be honest about my failures. One of the biggest roadblocks to... Bearing witness to Christ in our modern world is that Christians so often look like hypocrites because we make an awful lot of mistakes, right? And, and in a world of cancel culture, we have to cover that up. We have to pretend like we aren't that bad. The mercy of Jesus frees me to be honest about my failures. If my righteousness is secure in him, I don't have to pretend like I always have it together or I always get it right. I mean, that is one of the greatest problems with cancel culture nobody can ever nobody can ever risk admitting that they're actually wrong because if you do that you look weak and you give fuel to the enemy and and now they're just going to win and so we find people like doubling down on the most outlandish things in the world because i'm already halfway committed so i got to keep going right there's no freedom to admit i was wrong the mercy of jesus gives me that freedom gives me that freedom abiding in the mercy of christ frees me to be honest when i'm wrong and when i've wronged others i don't have to hide my sin because christ has dealt with it and when you think about it there's no honor in enduring scorn that you actually deserve like sometimes we kind of like uh, I, I, you're, you're receiving this persecution or whatever. And, and I remember, and maybe I've told this story years ago, I had a, a student in high school one time, and uh, he was a young Christian, loved the Lord, really you know, excited, and was just telling him how his teacher was just out to get him. He's just facing persecution every day in class. And so as we're talking, come to find out it's, he's not turning in any of his homework. He's, he's enduring scorn, but not because of his faith, because, you know, there's no blessing in enduring scorn that you actually deserve, right? I mean, Peter says this in First Peter 2, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? It? But if you do good and suffer for it and endure, that is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Looking to the Lord's hand for mercy frees me to be honest when I've made mistakes, the ways that I'm contributing to this whole mess. The ways that I've maybe prioritized secondary things instead of the primary thing, the gospel of Jesus. Or ways that I've failed to show the character of Christ even as I'm preaching the good news of Christ. So we get the gospel right in terms of its truth, but we miss its tone or its character. The ways that I'm, I've misunderstood or even misrepresented others in order to score points or to win. I can be honest about my failures because the mercy of Christ is enough. And not only does it free me to be honest, but third, his mercy frees me to lay down my life for those who oppose me. His mercy frees me to lay down my life for those who oppose me, for those who disagree with me or condemn me or cancel me. I don't have to fight fire with fire. I can instead lay down my life in love, which is exactly what Jesus did for those who opposed him, for those who literally canceled his life, right? He laid his life down in love. And he did it not only to save us, that was the main thing, he also did it to give us an example of what to do when we're in the same situation. First Peter 2 again, uh, starting in verse 21. For to this you've been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So it might feel like I'm I'm losing or just giving up if I don't fight back, right? against those who are seeking to discredit me or or, or wrong me. Like, I'm just kind of laying down and letting the other team win. That's not how Peter frames it at all, right? Don't forget who we actually serve in this whole uh, arrangement. The one who's enthroned in heaven. The one who's actually above the unjust voices. Waiting for him to act in mercy is not weakness or failure nor is submitting ourselves to the one who, ju- who judges justly, the just judge who stands above the unjust voices, and who will bring them to account and vindicate us in the end. So entrusting ourselves to him, looking to his hand for mercy, that frees us to adopt a, a posture of love and extend mercy to our accusers, just like Jesus did. It frees us to be just like Jesus, which means then finally his mercy makes honest, humble, truthful conversation possible. It makes honest, humble, truthful conversation possible. If I'm only ever fighting to win the argument at all costs, no wonder we can't get to the things that really matter. No wonder I'm distracting people from the truth of the gospel. The very thing cancel culture has has deprived us from, honest, humble, truthful conversation, the mercy of Jesus makes that possible. To engage in a genuine dialogue with someone with honesty, humility, and truth. Again, James 1 says, let every person be quick to hear. We like to be quick to speak. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If there is a and, and, and James is applying that both within the church and as we interface with outsiders, but but if there is a verse that helps us think about how to speak the gospel to in a in a culture of divisiveness, I can't think of a better verse. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We are not going to get there this way. Which doesn't mean everybody will automatically listen to you, right? Uh, Doesn't mean we'll never be accused or slandered. But at least we get ourselves out of the way. At least we can do that much. My pride, my ego, my agenda, I'm out of the way so that Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the conversation. It enables us as sojourners and exiles to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I mean, just imagine if the Lord's church could set a pace for a different kind of dialogue today like all of the anger, all of the biting and, and devouring, if, if we could just show a different way where we operate from humility and, and dependence on the Lord and, and, and love, what would our relationships look like? What, what would social media look like if we changed the rules of engagement to prioritize the gospel of peace over all of our petty arguments? What would our witness look like if we found refuge, found our refuge and vindication in Christ such that we're free to be accused, to be slandered, uh, and, and to love those who disagree with us the way Jesus has loved us, to listen and reason with them from a place of peace secured by the mercy of God rather than the insecurity and anger of this world? What would that look like? May we look to the Lord's hand for mercy. May that be our first instinct in the culture we live in today because it's the mercy of Jesus that enables us to meet the co- the constant contempt of this world with the gospel of peace. Let's pray. And I believe we're going to take a break. I don't know if we sing before that or just break. So, but let's pray. And let's ask God to do that. I'm just going to pray Psalm 123 over us right now. Lord, to you we lift up our eyes. O oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master... As the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our souls have had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. May we be a people known for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.